one of the greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible for sure. And last week we have talked about, and I'd like to give a little recap so we can kind of keep everything moving in a a blending uh, way that all comes together. Last week we talked about the complete and total destruction of the New Testament church uh, through uh, the infiltrations of three unbiblical systems. Uh, three systems that were started in the, around the 1900s that uh, brought us through to where we're at today. We talked about the neo-evangelical movement, the neo-orthodox movement, and the uh, charismatic movement, and we talked about it in great length last week, how that they completely changed everything about Christianity in that short period of time. Our verse last week was Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. This is what kicked all this off where it says we were not we were told and warned not to meddle with those that are given to change and I I took some time last week as I always try to do to show you how that Christ never changes God never changes and uh, you know we uh, uh, we uh, we saw the warning from God never to change what our unchanging God has given us through his unchanging word and the Bible is very clear that God always has establishes everything through pattern. There's a pattern for the New Testament church. There's a pattern for New Testament Christianity. There's a pattern for salvation. <clears throat> There's a pattern for the Christian life. <clears throat> There's a pattern for the ministry. There's a pattern for building a church. There's a pattern for being a pastor. Everything is found in the Bible. And when you use the Bible as your final authority and establish what you do according to the time-proven patterns that have been handed down for centuries, like I showed you last week, we come away not changing anything that God has given us. Let me just tell you something. <clears throat> Nothing man's going to come up with is going to be better than what God already came up with. Amen. And all this idea of change today uh, is uh, totally you know, off the wall as far as I'm concerned. It's interesting, verse 21 said, I am told to fear the Lord and the King. So that's what I do. I fear the Lord, God Almighty, and I fear the King, my King James 1611 authorized version. And I showed you that for 400 years, 400 years, that book stood alone. The only Bible that God used, the only Bible on this planet for 400 years was the one that the majority of you are holding in your hands today. And from 1900 to 2018, the day that we live in today, all of Christianity has completely changed. It, it's changed from an area that was certain about what it believes to an area now where it's uncertain about everything. Christianity has went from a very focused picture to a very out-of-focus gray mush. I, I'm not much of a photographer, I, I'm not much of a, of a taking pictures. I, I, you know, I, I just don't. But I remember one time I bought a 35-millimeter camera that had one of those digital cameras, and they just came out with it. It had what they call, I'm sure they got many things on it now, but it had InstaFocus. In other words, I could look at you and you're blurry and push the button that's going to take the picture <clears throat> just halfway down, and it automatically, that lens on the front one's and brought everything into focus. And then I took the picture. Otherwise, you had to hold it and crank the end to get it where you wanted it. This was insta-focus. You just looked at it. You're blurry. 
I push it halfway down, and it zips right into focus. You know, I thought that was an amazing thing. Didn't help me take any better pictures, but it taught me a great lesson. You know, that's what the Bible does for you. The Bible is an instant focus book. When you get into the patterns of the Word of God, whatever you look at, whoever you look at, whatever circumstance in life, if it looks blurry, the moment you apply the principles and push the button down, zip, instant focus. That's what the Bible does for us. And that all changed. That all changed when Christianity changed. And through a very slow process, we lost all the time-proven doctrines and principles and teachings that once made Christianity great. I got a call from a guy this week, a nice guy, and uh, he was obviously listening last week, or at least he listened to the deal when he called me, and I appreciate his phone call, and he wanted to explain himself, and he says, you know, he says, I, I was a Baptist one time, and he says, I left the Baptist church, and I now belong to, I won't tell you what church it is, uh, it's uh, here in Kansas City, I, 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 it's an evangelical church, and I, I'm going to this church now, and uh, the reason I left, he says, he says, I felt like I was, he says, I just was tired of being part of the dumb, stupid Baptist and their way that they are. And Baptist, he says, they turn people off. And, and I said, I, I, I totally understand that. I said, so I asked him, I said, well, let me get this right. You took Baptist off your own personal name and you moved from a Baptist church into a neo-evangelical, non-denominational church because you did not want to be associated with weird Baptists and some of the weird things that they do. Am I right? And he says, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And then I said, and then you became a neo-evangelical by going to so-and-so's church because, you know, that's what they are. And he said, that's correct. I said, let me ask you a question. In 1994, if you heard the message last week, we talked about the Catholic Evangelical Accord where 75% of the neo-evangelicals lined up with the Roman Catholic Church for evangelism in the third millennium, and they all got together, and the reason why they could all get together is because they made sure that they weren't going to talk about doctrine. They were talking about reaching people. But the Catholic Church reaches people by getting them baptized for salvation and then making them join their church to keep their salvation. Are you okay with that? He says, well, certainly not. I said, the evangelical crowd, your crowd, they go whatever they want to do and whatever's okay with you is okay with them. I said, so here's the deal. And I'm just asking. You left one church denomination because it was goofy. And then you joined another one, which is just as goofy. Because now what do you do with the fact that the group that you joined because the Baptists were goofy have now aligned with the Roman Catholic Church was totally goofy. How do you answer that? And of course, he did not have an answer. My answer to him is this. In any group of people, in any churches, in any center of denominations, you're going to have weird people. And you should know that because of your own family. Don't you have a crazy uncle in the woodpile someplace? Don't you have an aunt that everybody, when you start talking about it, you say, oh, yeah, I remember aunt so-and-so, what she said? Don't you? Don't you have a crazy gramp, grandpa running around someplace? My girls better shut up and not answer a thing here on that one. 
There's weirdness in everything. Why would you leave an organization that at least in its concept is biblical, has the truth of salvation, and move into a gray mush area that has no truth, that hasn't got the sense that wants to align itself with an organization that will send you to hell quicker than you could ever dream of? And we get the idea, well, I'm leaving this one because this one's goofy, and I'm going to... They're all goofy. You don't pick what your, what your Bible format is. You don't pick what you become or what you believe on the popularity. He said, well, Baptists turn people off. Well, I'm a Baptist, and I'm as straight down the line as you could be according to the Bible. And I still turn people off. You don't have to be a three-headed monster walking around to turn people off and be goofy. Because I'll tell you what, you can turn them off that way, but I'll tell you what will turn them off just as bad. The truth. So I, don't, I told him, I said, you know, you just traded one bad situation for another really bad situation. There's no perfect denomination. And you don't pick a belief system based on uh, the weird people in it. You pick a belief system based on the truth in it. But that's changed too. It has been said and pointed out in history, the great teacher... It has been said and pointed out that when God closed the Old Testament canon, those would be the Old Testament books of the Bible. In your Bible, that would be the last book, which is Malachi. In a Jewish book, it would be Second Chronicles. But when God closed the Old Testament canon, wrote the last book, it has been said that then there was no revelation from God for 400 years. We call it in the Bible teaching world, the 400 silent years, where God spoke to no one. Any truth anybody got, they got from what God had given the nation of Israel before that 400 years began or the captivity began. Any revelation of God to man, anything that God had to say to man, he said up to that point. And once the canon closed, God never revealed himself again for 400 years until the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That broke the silence. Now, during that 400 years, this is where all of the times that the Gentiles begin, and this is where all of the heresy and all of the misteachings and all of the Gentile philosophies begin to be formed, because God not speaking. He spoke the last time in the Old Testament when he closed the Old Testament canon and didn't speak for 400 years, that silence was broken at the first coming of Christ when he spoke. It's been said, it's been pointed out, this is called God's consistency in Bible study. It's been said that under the New Testament, the last time that God spoke to man was when he gave his final revelation of the Word of God in the King James 6, 10, 11 authorized version. There's no question about that that was the last Bible that was out for it stood for 400 years. For 400 years, God gave no revelation to man outside of the book that he gave him. And it's been said that just as God closed the Old Testament canon of Scripture and then didn't speak for 400 years and then broke that silence with the first coming of Christ, it's been said and pointed out 
that when God closed the canon of the New Testament and gave it to you in the form of a King James 6 and 11, there's been 400 years of silence that will be broken again by the second coming of Christ. Interesting. Now, the neo-evangelicals laugh at that. Most Baptist pastors laugh at that, and certainly Bible scholars and Bible carvers laugh at that, but that's okay. We're rejoicing today, Luke chapter 10, verse 21, that God hid those things from you. We're happy about it. Only time the Bible records Jesus rejoicing is in this point right here where he's rejoicing over the fact that God shut down the revelation to people who thought they were smarter than God. So slowly, very slowly, oh, so slowly, the change took place as the Bible says a little leaven leavened the whole lump. You know, um, I think it was Jared asked me this week about Larkin not having Daniel 7 down about the, uh, he missed the fact that those three beasts were America, uh, Russia, and Great Britain. It was you, wasn't it? Yeah. And I remember he told me that, and, I, and I, that's a great question because he's got a great mind. And and I told him, I said, that is so interesting that you would say that because, or, or catch that, because there is no way, yeah, Larkin missed that. When you get his dispensational truth, he's got Daniel 2 down, but when he gets to Daniel 7, he doesn't quite know what to do with it. And so he doesn't have it right. That's not his fault. I'm making a point here. It's not his fault because Dan, uh, uh, Larkin writes that in 1900. In 1900, Russia hadn't come on the scene yet. England was on the scene, but not in the proper place. And America hadn't come on the scene yet as the greatest nation. So he didn't have that to judge the verses by. In other words, sometimes the Bible will give you revelation that reveals itself as the things in history wrap themselves around that revelation. I say that to say this. Same thing happened to me, but a lot of people like me, back in the 1970s. When I got right with God and we started studying the Bible, this is 1972. When we got into the book of Revelation chapter 3, and we read about the Laodicean church, everybody back then, everybody back then thought that that was talking about the Methodist church, the Lutheran church, the Presbyterian church, the churches that came out of the Catholic church during the Reformation remained fundamentally strong for a while, and then all collapsed and now had went back into Rome. We actually thought that. We taught that. And we taught that because at that time, in just 1972, you didn't hear about neo-evangelicalism at that point. There were no great evangelical churches. Uh, there, all there were were Baptist churches. And we could not conceive at that point in time that the Laodicean mess that he's talking about in Revelation 3 could be us. We thought for sure it was those who came out of Rome that went back to Rome and apostatized, and we taught that, believed that, and now we know from 1970 to where we're at today, it was us. It was the Laodicean church, was the Baptist church, who sold their birthright embrace the neo-orthodoxy, embrace the neo-evangelicalism, and let somebody take the Bible right out of their hand. 
And it's off. But you see, we can see it back then, just like Larkin couldn't see it in 1900. Why? Because time hadn't played itself out. One of the greatest things about the Bible is that you don't get it all when you read it. He told you that he sealed some things up in Daniel that he didn't give Daniel. You're told that when John wrote the book of Revelation that God sealed some things up and told him not to write about them. You know why? Because God was not ready to reveal that truth to us yet. And maybe he will and maybe he won't. But if he does, it'll be because that the history of the world has brought itself to the place where now it demands that those revelations come forward. The Bible's an amazing book. It's an incredible book. The more I study it, the more I learn it, the more time I spend with it, the more in awe I stand to it. It's incredible. Now, today we're going to move on to chapter 24. Now, we're going to look at verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. Allow me to read them for you. It says, he that say, uh, verse 24, He that saith unto the wicked, thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. But to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. Every man shall kiss his lips that giveth a right answer. Prepare thy work without, and make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards uh, build uh, thine house. Baba, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Now, places like this, not only is there a good lesson in here that I want to give you, a couple of them, as a matter of fact, but this is a great example because you read 24, 25, 26, and 27, and many of God's people look at that and heard what I just read and said to myself, now, what is he going to get out of this? I mean, when you read this, this is kind of an abstract verse. It doesn't just fall out on the table for you. But this is an example how you use the key words and phrases and how you use the principles that you already know to unlock the Scriptures when you get into a place like this. Now, let me say this first off. Doctrinally, all this will be dealing with the Antichrist, with the Jew in the tribulation period. We know that in the first three and a half years that you, uh, he will enjoy the praise of men. Last week, we talked about a little bit how America and the impossible situation that we are in in America. And it's not just America. We're facing a worldwide calamity. Uh, a breakdown of every nation. I don't know of one nation that is, it can stand on its own today. It's in a mess. They're, they're, they're not eroding from the outside, but they're eroding from the very inside. And we're looking at a worldwide calamity. And we are desperately, we are desperately looking for someone who can fix it. We have President Trump. Your opinion of him doesn't interest me one way or the other. I have no opinion. I don't care one way or the other. I'm about to make a statement. Trump ran on the theme, make America great again. 
That was the theme that he ran on. He had enough sense to know that America was in trouble. But the problem was he didn't have enough sense to know what really will make America great again. He thought it would be making the economy good. He thought it would be, you know, building a wall down around the border to keep all the the, uh, illegal aliens out. He thought in his agenda, which I'm not fighting his agenda, but what I'm saying is he thought that fixing the physical problems would make America great again, and the physical problems is not what destroyed America. It was the spiritual problem that destroyed America, and once the physical problem got destroyed, then the physical problem came in. It's just that simple. We're in a mess in America. We really are. And it's a thing where, um, you know, the thing that will make America great again has nothing to do with how much money you got in the bank or you got a great job or that. I'm not saying those things aren't important. But he ran on the issue that, that I'm going to make, I have the ability to make America great again. You heard him say it. And I got to tell you, he's a very convincing guy. He's, he's done well. I mean, my goodness, he's, he made his own fortune five times over. I mean, uh, if uh, you look at it and, and uh, you know, everybody says, everybody says, well, he's a bully. Well, that may be true. But I'm tired of all the other nations bullying us. Maybe it's time we get us a bully. And bully somebody back. I don't really have any political aspirations. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I, I, I think oh, they're all crooks. I think if you really believe, if you really were a Christian the way the Bible defined it, and you got to be elected to president of the United States on Monday, you'd be assassinated by Tuesday. Because you'd be out street preaching. You'd be holding Bible studies, winning people to Christ. You'd be having a revival services instead of political rallies. And, and, and that's what a real Christian does. But you see, it doesn't work that way. And he ran on the theme, make America great again. And you know what? And America believed him. I don't know that they believed him because he was so persuasive. I think they believed him because he was persuasive, but everybody wanted to believe it. Because we all want change. We all know we're in a mess. The neo-evangelicals and the Baptists, they endorsed him. They thought, here's a guy who's going to bury the Democrats. All those liberals. Here's a guy that he says he's a Christian. He told us he was a Christian, and they wanted change so bad that the the leaders of the neo-evangelical movement made a statement at a great press conference and says, we back and endorse Donald Trump as the, as the candidate for the United States, as the neo-evangelical crowd, or this mess that we call ourselves as Christians. I am not sure that was before he paid off the porn star or afterwards. <laughs> we want to change so bad in America. We want to believe that somebody can change it. We desperately see around us terrible injustices. We see around us our own society eroding where 
as a young girl, you're afraid to go out jogging at night. Forget night, you're afraid to go jogging in the day. You're afraid to have your kids wait at the bus stop for a, for a, for a bus to go to school. Hey, in my day, you didn't have those problems. I walked to school back and forth, mile and a half or whatever. I waited here, waited there. My mom and dad both worked. I left school, came home for lunch, cooked my own lunch, and then walked back. I'm not saying there wasn't terrible people out there, but there was some structure to the fabric of society that has been ripped out of it. And I don't care what anybody says. There's no safe place in America today. You used to think that churches were safe. They'll come in the back door and kill 30 people before somebody takes him out. They'll walk into a ball field or ball thing and shoot somebody there. There's no safe place. We're in a society and a world in the country that has, has lost its mind. We're an insane asylum run by the very inmates. We're anarchy. There's no king in Israel, and everybody's doing it right. And this country so desperately wants change that a man can get up and say, I'll make America great again. And because to that point, nobody else has, they say, let's give him a shot. But the only thing that will make America great again is America coming back to God. And that will necessitate her coming back to God's Word. And on both cases, that's not going to happen. There'll be no fixing America. In fact, the neo-Orthodox and the neo-Evangelicals and the charismatic movement are not fixing the problem. Honestly, from a Bible, if you know anything about it at all, is paving the way for the Antichrist to make his entry a lot easier. Now, when the Antichrist does show up, going back to our verse here, he will overnight unite the world. He'll fix every problem that we have. We have a tremendous problem in the Middle East between the nation of Israel and the Muslims. He'll solve that just like that. We have arguments going on about religion and doctrine. That'll all go away. Of course, you know the ringleaders of that will be taken out of the way. Rapture of the church. And as verse 24 says, at that point in time, the world will say to the wicked, the Antichrist, you are righteous. Right now, the neo-evangelicals and certainly the neo-orthodoxies teach all millennialism and post-millennialism when it comes to the second coming of Christ. What does that mean? We believe that we call what we believe premillennialism. That means that we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back, set the world straight, clean all the mess out of this thing, and then set up his kingdom. The postmillennial crowd, which is most neo-evangelicals, they believe that they're going to make the world a better place to live. They're going to do it through their fixing the social injustices. They're going to do it by feeding the, 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 the hungry and taking care of the poor, which I'm all in favor of. 
They think they're going to do it by cleaning the world up. And when they get to the world through their good works and through their great endeavors, get the world to a point that is okay with Christ, then he's going to decide to come back because we cleaned it all up. That's post-millennialism. millennialism, which is the neo-crowd, or orthodox crowd, they don't believe there's any millennium at all. They believe you make your heaven and hell right here. So you can see that once we are gone, the premillennial crowd, all that's going to be left are the people who have been teaching for years. Hundreds of years that we get it ready and Christ comes back and they're going to say, we got it ready and Christ came back. He's called the Antichrist for a reason. He's not called the anti-dictator. He's not called the anti-governor or the anti-president. He's called the anti-Christ. He comes as Christ to a world that is left, thinking that he is Christ. And they say to him, thou art righteous. That's what the verse is talking about, doctrinally. And the world will blindly follow him just as the Baptist and the neo-evangelical crowds have followed the scholars of of their day and have been totally deceived, and in time get totally destroyed. Ah, verse 25. But to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. Not everybody will fall for it. One of the greatest truths anywhere in the Bible is I don't care whether it's before the law, during the law, in that 400 silent years, in a Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in the church age, in the tribulation, I don't care where you go in the Bible, no matter how bleak and how bad it gets, no matter how dark it becomes, God will always have his remnant. He will always have his faithful few. He will always have those who, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the challenges, in spite of the ridicule, in spite of the pressure, in spite of everything that goes on, that they will take their stand and hold true to what God has said. And verse 25 says, But to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. Now, doctrinally, again, staying with it, this will be the tribulation period, and this will be the 144,000 that we know that's defined for you in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Their work is defined for you in Revelation, uh, excuse me, Matthew 22 and Matthew chapter 25. These are the preaching evangelists that during the last part of the tribulation expose the man of sin for what he is. Where the whole world says, thou art righteous, these guys stand up and say, oh, no, he's not. Now, historically, who would it be? If you know anything about church history at all, you know that historically this would be the Bible-believing groups that we all know and love and talk about so many times. It would be the Waldensians. It would be the Huguenots. It would be the Hussites under John Huss in Czechoslovakia. It would be the Paulicians who, who rejected the teaching of Peter that the Catholic Church and realized that they needed to follow the teachings of Paul like we do. It was the Anabaptists. It was the Dutch Baptists. It was the English Baptists. It was all those early groups who stood up and preached on every street corner throughout Europe. 
that the Pope was the Antichrist and the Roman Catholic Church was the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. If you think I'm exaggerating that, you didn't read much about history. They were the minority in the midst of a world held in the clutches by the most satanic organization the world has ever seen. And they called it as it was, and they took their stand as a remnant. And they paid the price for it in blood. They exposed the Roman Catholic Church as the bride of Satan and the Antichrist as the man of sin, as the Pope. Martin Luther used to refer to the Pope where all the Catholics referred to him as his holiness. Martin Luther used to refer to him as your hellishness. Not very Christian. We go back in the annals of church history and there was more than one Pope reigning at one time, more than one time. And the one didn't like the other and the other one didn't like him. And so the one pope would get up and say that that pope over there, don't follow him, he's the Antichrist. The other guy would get up and say, don't listen to him, he's the Antichrist. Say, what do you think of that? I think it's the only time in history the two popes were right. (laughs) Now, inspirationally, it's me and you. Exposing the Antichrist, not the Antichrist, there's many Antichrists, First John, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Exposing today who want to steal the Word of God out of your hands. And the Bible says there's a delight and a good blessing in it. And, and I might say the good blessing of God are good. And when you take your stand for God as a remnant, there's going to be some blessings in that. God will take care of you. He always has. Another great principle that I I would tell you to write down and remember, and I I tell this to people going through marital issues or or wherever, and I always say this, that no matter what you're going through in life or what you're facing, God always takes care of the person who does what's right. There's blessings in doing what's right, even though if the circumstances are overwhelming. And I might say the blessings of God are great, but the, the delight is in taking on some of these guys on is also fun too. God will have his remnant who will stand greatly overwhelmed, greatly outnumbered, and they'll take on a system of false teaching. They did it in history. They'll do it in the tribulation period. And there are some of God's people who will do it today. Personally, I, 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 I like being outnumbered. I think it's a great thing. I think it keeps you on your toes. Uh, I think that uh, I remember, and I told this before, uh, Dick Winters was a uh, commander of Easy Company, 101st in, in the famous miniseries mini Band of Brothers. And when the Battle of Bald took place, it caught, it caught the uh, Allies completely in disarray. And they took in like, I mean, the Germans moved through Belgium into the, into the Ardennes forest, and they took a whole units. 10,000 prisoners of Americans who never expected. They were told they were going home in two weeks and the war was over. And Hitler put one last offensive together, which we know today as the Battle of the Bulge, and it's because of the fact that the line was here, and when the Germans came through it, they pushed that line all the way back almost to Antwerp, Belgium, and formed a great bulge in the line, so it became known as the Battle of the Bulge. Some of you fight that battle today. as I do myself. (laughs) 
The 101st Airborne was pulled out of the rest camp, didn't have any winter clothes. And it, by the way, this was right before Christmas in December. It was the coldest winter in 40 years in Europe. They were thrown into the line. Most of them didn't have any ammunition. They didn't have any warm clothes. They didn't have any food. And for 20-some days, they held the line because Bastogne in Belgium had five roads coming into it. That was the key that if the Germans took Bastogne, they could take all the way to Antwerp, and it would have been a real mess, and we could have lost the war. So through the 101st Airborne in there, and they had to hold Bastogne, and, and the, the German army completely circled and cut them off in Bastogne. They couldn't get anything in. They couldn't get out. No food, no clothes, no ammunition, nothing. And it was so cloudy that, that the aircraft couldn't, couldn't maneuver to fly to help them. They were, they were in a real trouble. And uh, one, of the, one of the newspaper guys who was there was interviewing him, and he came up to Dick Winters, who was a great, a great leader. He's dead now, a great leader. I met him one time, a great leader. And they're interviewing him, and he says, uh, the news says, and the whole world is watching Bastogne and the 101st Airborne, what do you think about the fact that everybody says, and the Germans are saying they're going to crush this sound, and they have got you completely surrounded? Now, he's expecting some kind of, you know what Winter said? He looked at him and he says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. And you're a Christian. You're supposed to be surrounded. You're supposed to be overwhelmed. Let me tell you something. If they're not, in your Christian life, if they're not coming over the north wall, uh, there's something wrong with you. If you get along with everybody and you mamsy pamsy with everybody and nobody hates you and nobody doesn't like you and you're not nobody's giving you there's something wrong with you. You're supposed to be the remnant. God's people today as a remnant will take their stand against the most overwhelming odds you've ever seen. And personally, I like that. I never say much about it. I, I just keep it to myself, and I just I don't ever say much. But the, uh, I, I think there's been a lot of times in my life, but one in particular uh, that I I I I like to think about. I I look back and see how God handled it, and to me, it was one of the greatest things uh, that I that ever God ever did in my life. I never tell anybody about it. I don't go around bragging about it. It just it was just it's just what it is. It's what we do. A number of years ago, probably. 25 or 30. We were taking discipleship teams all around the world. Many of you were part of that. And I took a team down to a place in Brazil called Rio de Janeiro. And Rio de Janeiro, there was a man down there who had the largest church in all of Brazil. His name was Dr. Fanini. Dr. Fanini, to put him in some kind of context, was like the Billy Graham of South America. He was, he was an incredible, had an incredible church. I had met him, and he had seen our discipleship material, and he wanted to know if I would personally bring a team down and, 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 and teach his church how to disciple. And I said, absolutely, I will, I will. Steve Steve's dad, uh, Steve Brackeen Sr., Michelle's dad, Steve Brackeen uh, Sr., were, was missionaries down there. So they know I'm telling you the truth when I say this. And it was a thing where I said, absolutely. So I had about 20 or 30 people. We all got on a plane to Brazil. Anybody here go down that time that you want to confess to it? One here? 
Was this one of you? I thought there might be more. You didn't go, Penny? No, that's right. You were in jail at that point. You couldn't get out on probation. <laughs> so, Dr. Fanini calls me. And I had met a guy by the name that was in San Paulo whose name was Thomas Gilmore. Thomas Gilmore was a great missionary. He was a King James guy all the way. And Thomas Gilmore had called me and he said, hey, there's a real ruckus down here about you coming down because they have seen some of your material and your stand on the King James Bible. And all of these churches down here that are connected with Fanini are all connected to this Bible college. And he says, it's, it's really getting ugly. And he says, and I'm just calling, I want to ask, Dr. Fanini wanted me to call you, that you're going to be down here for a week and a half, that Saturday morning that you're here. They would like to have a debate with you on the issue of the King James Bible. Dr. Fanini believes it. I'm not sure he's strong enough to take it on by himself. And he wants to know if you'll take and have a debate with the professors of the college uh, that, that over the King James Bible. And I said, absolutely. I think that'd be great. And he said, well, wait a minute. He says, there's 30 of them. And there's going to be 5,000 students here. And they have allotted from 9 o'clock in the morning to 1 o'clock in the afternoon for you to go back and forth with these guys. But I'm just telling you, you don't have to do this. He says, it's going to be 30 to 1. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm in, man, no problem for me. And I'll tell you, I knew what the opportunity was down there. Now, let me show you how God works. I went down fully ready to go. It got to be Thursday, kind of happened Saturday, ready to go. Old Thomas is all nervous. He's going to be my translator. He was a great translator. Him and I really work well together. But he's, he's nervous. 30 to 1, you know. And he says, uh, he, says, are, are, he says, there's still time. I said, let's go and do this, man. I mean, I, in my mind, you put 30 guys against me, I'll tell you what. I'll run between the cracks so fast and so far, I'll get you guys fighting among yourselves. <laughs> and so I said, I'm ready. So that Saturday morning, Thomas picks me up. We go there to this big auditorium. And Dr. Fernini is there. And Dr. Fernini is, he, I can tell he's nervous. And I meet, uh, you know, the college professor, not the college president, you know, and Dr. Fernini. And uh, we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, somebody comes in and comes over to Dr. Fernini. And then Dr. Fernini, I can see he's really troubled. And he comes over to me and Thomas and he says, they're not coming. All 30 of them have backed out. They're not coming. Thomas, as he laid on the floor, <laughs> wiping his brow, praise the Lord for that, Dr. Fanini was enraged. He had put so much into this that he felt like he had lost faith that these guys had betrayed him. So, for the next three and a half, four hours, Dr. Fanini said, Everybody is here. You came to teach. You teach us for the next three and a half, four hours why the King James Bible is the Word of God. 
and for the next three and a half hours without any opposition at all. Not one person. I let them have it. I beat these guys that didn't show up senseless. And at the end, Dr. Fanini got up and Dr. Fanini said, this church, my church, will always only stand on the King James Bible as the absolute word of God. God's always got his remnant. And it was a case where, you know, he wants to put you in the same kind of scenario. Now look at verse 26. Every man shall kiss his lips that giveth the right answer. Now this is a tribulation in the second coming passage uh, all the way. Psalms chapter 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put uh, their trust in, in him. Now, here's what you got. In the Old Testament, you had Baal worship. Baal worship was a worship of graven images. Part of Baal worship and the worship of that was to actually kiss the images. And uh, you, 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 you see it all the time. The Roman Catholic Church has you kiss the Pope's ring. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, it says, here's the remnant, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, here it comes, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. See? They kissed the graven images. I was, you know, I told you down in Rio, when you come into Rio de Janeiro, there on that mountaintop is a 600-foot Christ. Did you ever see it? You stand with his arms outstretched. And uh, that's their God. Now, I just tell you, Rio de Janeiro is the most demon-possessed city on the planet. We were there holding our uh, discipleships, and uh, we were up on a little hotel up there that, uh, where we stayed at, which was kind of on a little hill, and you could look out around all the different things down there, and word got out that we were there. And every night, uh, you would see the, 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 uh, the witch doctors and the witches uh, having a little fire down around the circle of uh, where we were staying. Uh, and every, uh, against us, and every morning you'd come down there, we'd run, and there'd be dead chickens and blood all over the place, and uh, it's, it's a very satanic town. Unbelievable. That statue needs to be a little bigger. didn't do much for them. <laughs> they got one down in the Ozarks. Did you ever go see the Christ of the Ozarks? That's a neat one. I was there one time, just to show you how it works. I was there one time, can't get close to it because they got a chain link fence about this high, you know, around it. People are all standing looking at it. <laughs> you know. And for whatever reason, you have this long, park your car, long walk up, chain on the side, and then a big circle around it with a chain. You can't get close to it. And everybody gets quiet. <laughs> They're standing there. And I'm sitting there watching. I'm, I'm loving this. I'm just checking this out. There's just one lady. I know. Here's the, here's the Christ. Here's the, here's the fence. You say like this. <laughs> Steps over the fence, comes up to the statue, kisses it, and goes back. I'm saying, you got to. You know, it was the only time in my whole history of my life where I, I was off my game. 
I should have been on my game, and when she went up there, I should have said, Hey, what are you doing? I, <laughs> Freeze! No, no, no. <laughs> Hosea chapter 13, verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it the work of craftsmen, and they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. There it is. See? Now, to kiss something is to embrace something. And Israel embraced Baal worship, and along with that embracing came the intimacy of all of that religion. And in the tribulation where they, they will follow the same thing, and what they did is they, they kissed the images. It shows they're embracing them, how important it is. And they embrace those images by kissing them. And in the tribulation period, the nation of Israel is going to have to embrace Christ, kiss Christ, and when we talk about kissing him, embracing him, we're talking about on the mouth, we're talking about the words of his mouth. Embracing the words of his mouth. It isn't the fact that you go up and kiss Christ. It's the fact that the words out of his mouth. Job chapter 23, verse 12, a, a tribulation passage. Job says, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. When you embrace the words of Christ that comes out of his mouth, you kiss him. You embrace the intimacy. Now, inspirationally, it's me and you. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, has God ever come down and kissed you? He comes down and kisses you through the kisses of his mouth, the words. For you and for me, the precious intimacy of a precious embracing of his words, of his mouth, my promises to me that from my altogether lovely. You know, I say it all the time. Everything in this world, no matter where it, where it goes or where it comes from, all goes back to the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of all the stories that we tell our children. I think of all the movies that we see. I think that, you know, all of the things that we watch and we get so caught up, we, we, we don't even know that the very plots by which the movies are made that we watch all follow back to the Bible. The very nursery rhymes that we told our children. The fairy tales as they go. That Bible says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I want to tell you something. There's a, there's a fairy tale that we like to tell our kids. They made cartoons of it. They made movies about it. Walt Disney made it famous. It's a story of Snow White. You know what? When you got Snow White, what you got? You got Genesis chapter 2 and 3. You got a woman that was snow white. 
who took of a forbidden fruit by the wicked witch of the West. And she died. And you and I, because death passed upon one man, death passed upon all men, and you and I are, were dead in the trespasses of sin. You have Snow White, who's a picture of, of, the, of, of you and me. You have the wicked witch, who is a female deity who brings death to her. You have seven dwarfs, and in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, dwarfs are demonic, so they're probably the seven unclean spirits that Israel gets over there in Matthew 12. You got the wicked witch, you got the seven dwarfs, you got Snow White. All we need now is a prince. And you know the story. She's laying there dead. And here comes the prince. And that prince comes in. She's laying there. He kneels down and he kisses her and she comes to life. And I want to tell you, there was a day that you and I were dead in trespasses of sin and we were dead. And one day my prince came down and when he kissed my soul with the word of God, I came alive. And that intimacy of that kiss of your soul has bonded you for eternity. And someday you're the bride. He's the bridegroom. And like every fairy tale, when the prince kissed her, brought her back to life, they lived happily ever after. And I want to tell you something. My prince came down and kissed my wounded soul and gave me life. And I'm telling you right now, someday quickly, maybe today, hopefully by the time I'm done here, we are going to live together forever happily. That ain't no fairy tale, folks. And one day my prince will come. I'm not talking about standing in line at photo mat. Look at verse 27. Prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the fields. And afterward, build thy house. Now, this is a great principle. Here again, doctrinally, this is Israel and the work of the 144,000, which we've already talked about a couple of times. Inspirationally, it's a great picture and principle for us in preparing ourselves for the work God saved us for. It says, prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself. Now, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. And then it says in verse 17 that the man of God uh, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God has a perfecting process for your life and my life after we get saved. That perfecting process is where God wants you to fit in what he's going to do. And verse 27 is simply saying, and this is true of so many of you, that when you get into God's ministry, you'll find out exactly where you fit into God's overall plan. Now, there may be a lot of God's people out there in the world today that don't know where they're going or what they're doing and can't figure it out. I'm going to tell you something. I, for one, know exactly what my job is. I know exactly what God's called me to do. I know exactly where he's called me to do it. And I know what my job is. And I know where I fit into what God is doing. That ought to be every Christian ought to have that. There's two types of lost in the Bible. 
There's the lost man who's without Christ, and he's lost to where he's at. And then there's a saved man who's lost of who he is with Christ. You get saved to serve. You don't get saved to sit. And nowhere in the Word of God does God ever recognize or acknowledge a child of God not involved in ministry. And when you get into God's ministry, you'll find out exactly. God will, God will bring you to the point that he'll open up and he'll give you exactly what you need to find out where you fit into what he's doing. Over there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, there's a verse that everybody has a struggle with. I, I never saw the struggle with it. It talks about work out your own salvation. And everybody says, well, that means works is for salvation. How can it be works for salvation if you're already saved and then you're told to work it out after you get saved? If it was works for salvation, they'd say it's work for salvation, get saved by works. He's talking about somebody who's already saved and you're supposed to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's that mean? It means that once you get saved, you're supposed to find out what God wants you to do and you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to work out and find out where you fit. In our Christian life, there are many things that we are to be absolute about. I get that, sure of. But three of the main ones, the Bible talks about a sure word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It says, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed of the light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. That's the rapture. So you have a sure word. And if you go back to verse 18, and you'll find what it's more sure of, because verse 18 talks about the very voice of God. You have a Bible in your hand that is a more sure prophecy than the voice of God himself. You know why? Because when God gave you the book in 1600, he's not going to speak to you other than through that book. Then you're supposed to have a sure calling. Once you get a sure word, then you can have a sure calling. You know what God's called you to do. And it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, if you do that, you'll never fail or never fall. Once you figure out what God has given you in the book, then you'll figure out what God has called you to do, and then you'll figure out how God is to find you and fit you into that to accomplish that. The worst calamity that you've ever saw in a Christian life will be a Christian who's not sure of his calling. And they're wandering around everywhere. They do everything they think they're supposed to do except what they're supposed to do. And the fulfillment for a Christian is found in only two areas. Who you are in Christ and what you do in Christ after you figure out who you are in Christ. And the third thing is a sure reward. Proverbs eleven eighteen, The wicked soweth a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. You, wanna, you, wanna, you want to understand the law of sowing and reaping? It's simply this. You reap the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You reap righteousness, you reap a reward. I mean, you sow righteousness, you reap a reward. Uh, life is about, a ministry is about reaping what you sow. You invest your life in the Word of God, the sure word and the sure calling. You invest your life in that, it'll bring a sure reward. It's just that simple. Whatever you invest your life in is what God will bring apart in the harvest. Now look at verse 27, the middle of the verse. Make it fit for thyself in the field. 
Well, Matthew chapter 13, verse 38 now tells us that the field is the world. So you're supposed to fit yourself into the world as God's ambassador, as God's remnant, to do through a sure word and a sure calling to receive a sure reward. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 16, where it talks about the virtuous woman. It says, she considereth the field and buyeth it. I, I, always, I always looked at that and I always thought, what an amazing principle that is. The Bible says the field is the world. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When Jesus Christ came down and died on the cross, he died for the whole world, the whole field. He never asked you to buy the whole world. He asked you just to buy a field within this world. He bought the field. He asked you to consider a field. My field that he asked me to consider, Kansas City. And you know what? I bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Only place I've ever been since God saved me. Only place where I'll, I came here and I'll die here. This is my field right here. I got a sure word that gave me a sure calling and I saw the field that God gave me and I bought it. Your job and my job is through the sure word to get the sure calling, to get the sure reward. Figure out the field that God has called you to. Figure out where you fit. Find out that field and then buy it. Everything you got. Now the word fit. I like that word. The word fit is a key word to study in our text here today. For you and for me, it's a great principle that we need to understand. And you have heard me say many times uh, that the key to ministry uh, will be unity. Everybody basically on the same page of ministry and doing things. When I taught you through the people ministry, I teach you uh, on a unity concept of, of that if you're going to work with people, I give you how I do it, what I'm thinking, how it works, and I expect you to do it that way. I mean, I'll leave you room for your own personality, of course. But, uh, you know, and unity will be based on our understanding of the word fit. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he says this. My beloved talking about me talking about Christ. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousands. His head is the most fine gold, his locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are the eyes of dove by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. Now there's the first time you find the word fitly, fitly set. It's talking about the eyes of the Lord Jesus. His eyes are fitly set. You know what that means? It means it sees things just the way they are. There's a good balance to him. His eyes are, are fitly set. And your eyes, when it comes to the Word of God and what you see in life, you should see it as it really is, not as it appears. You know how you do that? You see it through his eyes. In fact, over there in chapter uh, 5, verse 12, it says that he has the eyes of a dove. And when you go over there to 115, talking about the church, it says that she has the eyes of the dove. In other words, we're to see things through his eyes. And his eyes are fitly set. So the first thing you have to do to get fit into what God do, you have to get your eyes fit. Amen. Fitly set. Not just fit, fitly set. What is your eyes fitly set on? The Word of God. Notice what he says. 
His eyes are as eyes of doves, type of the Holy Spirit of God. By the rivers of water, type of the Word of God. Washed with milk, type of the Word of God. In other words, you're fitly set in what you look at on the book that God gave you. Now, if that wasn't enough, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. A word, talking about the Bible, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That's the Word of God. Once you get your eyes fitly set, then you start to put out the Word of God. It's fitly spoken. When I preach the Word of God, when you teach discipleship or you work with somebody or you preach like wherever you go to preach or whatever you do, uh, our message, our preaching, uh, when we preach, we should make it fit. We should understand our crowd. We should understand what we're trying to do. So many guys that they preach, they're over the place, man. You don't know what they're trying to do. When you preach, you have one theme or one thought you want to communicate. You get that thing out there and lay it down, and then everything else you use, you use to drive that point home, and you make the message fit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, talking about the church. And are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the church cornerstone, talking about the church, in whom all the building, the church, fitly framed together. There it is, fitly framed. A church needs to be fitly framed together. What's that mean? Every piece fits. The framework of the church should be fit perfectly together. And it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. To whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Once the church, once your eyes are fitly set, once your words are fitly spoken, once the church is fitly framed, you'll become fit for what God wants you to do in your temple. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. There it is again. The body, body of Christ. Fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now there is the, there is the perfect picture of what a New Testament Bible-believing church should be. Its eyes are fitly set on the fit Word of God. The church is trained and built that everybody is fit together. And then as you're fit together, you take that and you build your body, your temple for God, fitly built together, and everybody's on the same page and understand what God wants them to do because you fit in. Now, let me speak clearly. All my ministry, wherever I've been, I've heard the whiners and the complainers, well, I, we just, I just don't fit in. Well, I just, you know, I, I like the church, but I just don't. First rule number one, you only get out of something what you are willing to put into it. Amen. I don't have any friends. Well, it's hard to have friends when you never come to church. <laughs> I know. Everybody should be calling you up. We had to pass your name out on the call list this week. hundred people call so-and-so. They feel unwanted. You got friends because you show with yourself to be friendly. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. 
But all my ministry, all my life, I've heard, well, so many people say, well, I, 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 I just... I just, I just don't fit in. Well, let me, allow me just take another couple of minutes and broaden your horizons. Now, in any Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, when you have a faithfulness in ministry, a fearlessness in ministry, and a ferventness in ministry, there's your threes, by God's design, you will only fit in when you make yourself fit into the field of ministry. Notice it says, make yourself Nobody's going to make you fit in here. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't, whatever you do in life, there's probably very few things that you did that you really wanted to do that somebody had to twist your arm to do it. If you like to play football and sports, nobody probably made you do that. Maybe there are some parents that made them do it, but the majority would not. You like to play baseball. We got some great baseball players. Nobody made you do it. You want to go do this, you want to go do that. Nobody makes you do it. But suddenly when it comes to getting into the ministry, somebody has to make us. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. And, I, and, I, and honestly, if you're going to fit in to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, the only way you're going to fit in is through ministry. I praise the Lord every day of my life that this church is not a social club. But I'll tell you, we're always looking for a party. Each one of you, every one of you sitting under the sound of my voice today, each one of you are an incredible piece of work that God wants to fit into his plan. My job and the job of my dear people here who work with me in ministry, our job is to mold you. Our job is to shape you. Our job is to knock off the rough edges our job is to polish you and to fit you in to the ministry of what God is doing here. We have one common thread that weaves its way through everything that we do. It's ministry. And the ministry is people. You want to fit in? It's through helping people. It's through understanding through the sure word. Your sure calling for a sure reward. My philosophy in ministry is completely foreign from every philosophy I've ever seen in every pastor in any church. We don't break everybody down into little cell groups. We don't have, or we do for the teen, but for their own reason. We don't have, we don't have a little section for the teenagers and then a little section for, for the singles and then for the college and for the young adults. We don't have a jolly 60 ministry here where we put you on a little bus and take you out someplace where you can try to free samples uh, of, of cheese or whatever, uh, you know, because you don't have any money. Uh, you know, it, it, that's not what we do. And I get it. The reason, and they will sell this. They've told me this. The reason is that they, they say, well, you have somebody that's 60 and somebody that's 20. They really don't have anything socially in common. And I understand that. You know, a 60-year-old, and this is really not true in our church, but just for the sake of let me say this, a 60-year-old is not going to be out there playing ball with a 20-year-old or playing volleyball, even though in our church, we have some really weird people who can do that. <laughs> and I get it. 
a 60-year-old and a 20-year-old may have nothing common in playing ball. So we only look at the social, and we never look at the aspect. They may not have anything in common playing ball, but they have everything in common for ministry. It's just where a pastor puts the emphasis. I started a softball ministry years ago before we ever had it here. Hundreds of people came to Christ through it. Basketball, too. Volleyball, also. I mean, the Memorial Day picnic, you think we've had it ever since we've been here. That Memorial Day picnic goes back 40 years. Long before you ever were born, some of you. And you know what? I, I've never, I, I, we do a lot of fun things. We do more fun things than most churches. Most churches, you know, I mean, they, they don't have anything fun you do. I mean, the funnest thing for the pastor is we're going to take up an offering now. I mean, that's his fun day. <laughs> and so you have, you have softball leagues, volleyball leagues. And here's what they, here's, here's the mindset. Okay, we're going to have a, we're going to have a softball league and uh, we're going to play softball and uh, hopefully we'll get some people to come and uh, maybe we can get some people saved. That's the standard thought. Here's my idea on it. We're going to have a softball league and it's going to be a ministry. I'm going to give two captains and a co-captain. I'm going to give you seven people. You've got to have ten to play. You go find three more people. We're going to have a softball league, and it's going to be ministry. And in the process of having a ministry, we're going to try to figure out how to play softball. It's ministry. And I get it. I get it. A 50-year-old, a 60-year-old has nothing in common with somebody going out there playing ball or running the Iron Man or whatever. But you know what? This church isn't about those. It isn't about the events. The common thread that holds everything we do together is the ministry, and the ministry is reaching people. That's why in discipleship, you can have a 60-year-old and a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old, and they minister together. When they're out on the street on restart, you got them all ages out there, and they're ministering together. Ministry does not know an age limit. The older ones are supposed to lead the younger ones. Many times the younger ones in some churches lead the older ones. It doesn't matter. We can put, I can put any 20 people together, any 15 people together, put you in a scenario where you got to go do this. And I know you're going to get it done. Our church is a great example of this. You team up to do whatever needs to be done. And it isn't, well, I'm 60 and I can't do this and I'm 20 and I can. You minister together because you fit together. And you fit together because your eyes are fit on the book your words is fit in your mouth, your church is fit and pulls it together, and you have built your body together in this church, fitly joined together for the work of the ministry. You're vessels that are fit for the master's use. Why? Because you fit together. Why? Because in any situation you go in, it doesn't matter who does what. You don't stand over there, well, I didn't get to win so-and-so to Christ. I didn't get to preach. I didn't get to get my testimony. You're there. You fit in. You're part of the body. It's like your, your, your physical body. I don't go home this afternoon and take my shoes off and take my socks off, and my toe says, well, thanks a lot. 
Your hands were waving all around. Your mouth was going. Your nose were going. But my, I was stuck down here in this old leather suit with, with this big old wool sock around me. I'm just not going to be a toe anymore. You think you're such a good preacher? You think you can move around up there? Just let my big toe friend here freeze up for a while and not do what it's supposed to do and see how good you dance around up there making a fool out of yourself. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> Tried to teach him a lesson. I just taught myself one. And no, your toe has to connect to your body. It doesn't get any glory. It's probably the ugliest part of your body. It doesn't get any glory. Nobody says, wow. I know, you go places and spend hundreds of dollars to paint them. <laughs> then you put shoes on and nobody sees them. <laughs> and at the end of the day, the paint doesn't keep them from smelling just like they did before you painted them. <laughs> Their toes. And I'm telling you, the part of your body that never gets recognized, the part of your body that everybody always sees and hears and watches, oh, what an amazing person she is, or this out. Yeah, and the toes down there said, yeah, I never get any credit. No, the toe doesn't care. But you know why? Because it's fit to your foot and your foot to your leg and your leg to your hips and to a part of the body. And it's fitly joined together. And all it takes is your toe saying, I ain't doing it today. And the whole system breaks down. That's the way a church works. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter who's preaching or who's teaching. It doesn't matter who gets to say what. We are fitly joined together as a body and we work together and that's what makes it work. Look at the last part of verse 27. And afterward, build thine house. Wow, another great principle. Put the building fitly joined together of your body first and everything else in life second. Now, I know it uses the word house here, and we'll talk about it in that context, but he's using the word house here in a broad expression of everything that the world has. You don't want to get caught up with all the worldly things and neglect God's house. And, of course, there's a two great examples of this in the Bible. The first one is the book of Haggai. Where they go back under Ezra and Nehemiah, they're told to rebuild the temple, God's body, the place where God is going to meet with them. They're told to rebuild it. They begin to build it. And then when Haggai writes, it's 15 years later, somewhere from point A, when they started to build it, to now, 15 years later, they quit building it. Not only are they quit building it, all the material that was gathered to build that God's temple they're taking it and building their own houses with it. And Haggai says, what's wrong with you? Somebody said, well, it's just a building. He says, just a building? That's the temple of God. That's not just a building. That is the future of your nation. Oh, it's just going to church. Oh, it's just Bible study. Oh, it's just this or just that. You're nuts. 
It's building your future as a child of God that you can get a sure word, get a sure calling, and get a sure reward. And most importantly, that you'll fit in to that calling. But God got a spot for you. Then the second one is Solomon. Chosen by God to build the temple of God. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 6, 38, that Solomon takes seven years to build the temple of God. But in 1 Kings chapter 7, 1, it says he took 13 years to build his own house. Now, Solomon is one of the great disappointments in the Bible, though he may be the wisest man that ever lived and gives us a couple of really good wisdom books. The end of his life is not very good. And you could look at all the dumb things that he does. He puts his own kid in sacrifices to the fire of Moloch. He collects women from all around the world. He does a lot of stupid things. And everybody focuses on all the things that he does. He splits, he puts his fool for a son in who splits the kingdom and brings an end to the nation of Israel 400 years later. We can look at all of that and list all those things out, but I want to tell you this. Let me tell you where it started. Let me tell you where it all started, the end disaster of his life. Let me tell you where it started. It started all the way back right here where he took more time to build his own house than he did God's. And your life will wind up as a disaster someday and you'll have all kinds of problems and you'll be scratching your head why. And I'll tell you right now, ahead of time why. It's because you spent more time with the things of this world and building your own world home than you have building the temple that God gave you and fitting in to what God's called you to do. You not only have a sure calling, you don't have a sure anything. Getting caught up in all the things of life. Illustrated here by a house and neglecting what God has saved you for. Never have your physical house in better shape than your spiritual house. Never have more things of the world dominating your life than the spiritual things that God has given you. Preparing thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the fields. And afterward, you build your house. If you want to be God's minister, and again, I say this, there is nowhere in the Bible. You may not be a pastor, but everybody in here that's saved is a preacher and a minister. If you want to be God's minister in his field, the world, you want to buy a field someday, buy it with all that you have, then you've got to do the work to get there. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to make it work for you. Because there'll be times when you don't want it to work for you. I'm just being honest. There'll be times that you don't want to study it. There'll be times that you don't want to come to church. There'll be times that you don't want to come to Bible study. There'll be times that you don't want to do it. I'm just telling you, as saved as we are and love the Lord as we are, we still have this flesh, and sometimes that old house wants to run the new house. And you have to fit yourself into it and make yourself fit and allow God to make you all that he wants you to be. Priorities in life. Ministry number one. It's all we save you for. Everything else is great. Not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying priorities in life. God's people are the worst at prioritizing the things of God in their life as anybody on this planet. And they always wind up prioritizing the things that don't matter and putting God at the short end of it. 
And you prioritize your life by, first of all, getting a sure word. When you get that sure word, you get your eyes fitly set. You start speaking a word fitly spoken. You start letting the word of God in your life through ministry give you a sure calling. And that sure calling, God will take you and mold you and make you. He'll use people in your world to bring you where he wants you to be. And once you get established and your part fitting into what God's program is, not your program, not my program, what God's program is, the ministry of a New Testament local church, then you'll receive a sure reward. There's a sure word to be had. There's a sure calling to fulfill. And there's a sure reward to be desired. We'll hold up there.